The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. World Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Frederick Douglass once said, Once let the black man get upon his person the brass letters U.S., let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, and there is no power on the earth or under the earth which can deny that he has earned the right of citizenship in the United States. An inspiring claim, but... How did it work out in practice? Not just for African Americans, but for Irish Americans as well. Our subject today, Becoming American Under Fire, Irish and African Americans and the Politics of Citizenship. We'll be talking with the author of this book, Christian G. Samito, on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a clear and relatively mild February afternoon in 2010 for those who are downloading this years later and wondering what's the context. It's February 19th, a week after Lincoln's birthday. We talked about Abraham Lincoln last week. We move on to a new topic this week. But before going any further, a reminder, and I know my lawyer guest will approve, that this is a disclaimer of any liability on the part of East Carolina University for any outrageous things I might say. Although I'm using their phone and their computer, it's all my show, and I know my guest will likewise speak for himself and not any other institution. Well, uh, speaking of institutions, uh, I received an interesting email from a uh, listener this week uh, asking uh, thoughts about what's been going on here in the state of North Carolina in the past uh, month or so dealing with American history and the Civil War. Normally, when one talks about nutty political behavior in the Carolinas, it's South Carolina that we're talking about. Uh, recently, somebody in our uh, uh, state to the south proposed that uh, U.S. Uh, greenbacks no longer be recognized, that we overturn the 
Legal Tender Act, uh, that they overturn the Legal Tender Act, nullify it, I guess, and just go back to a gold and silver economy. One almost wishes that would pass the South Carolina legislature just to see uh, the the, uh, hijinks that would ensue as their economy collapsed upon itself and they entered sort of colonial status within the country. But innocent people would be hurt. It's not just for our amusement that that we'd want something like that. so normally it's South Carolina that's that's off the deep end, um, a tradition going back, of course, to 1860. But this time uh, it's North Carolina. In the last year or last uh, month or so, the uh, Department of Public Instruction, and this became nationally known, proposed a new set of curriculum standards for North Carolina high schools that included an American history course that would begin in 1877. Uh there being nothing really significant that I can think of offhand that happened before then. Um, I mean, Reconstruction, Civil War, Revolution, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, these have little effect on America today. Um, nothing, no reason to know what's in the Constitution, for example. Uh, well, as it happened, there was a, a national outcry of opposition to this uh, proposal. Uh, coming from Every quarter of the, uh, the political compass, interestingly, uh, uh, the, the always fair and balanced Fox News uh, broke the story nationally, uh, and there was a great deal of opposition from the right for this assault on our Judeo-Christian heritage. But equally, the uh, uh, left-leaning professors of my department joined me in a un- unanimous statement to the uh, Bureau of Public Instruction opposing this uh, on the grounds that it was just not good history, that uh, the idea students could learn early history in the grade school or in middle school when their minds are not yet formed, just uh, uh, pulpy masses of hormones in, in eighth grade where my daughter is now, uh, that that somehow would be adequate preparation for a life of citizenship is, is ludicrous, and we said so, and everybody said so. And I'm delighted to announce that uh, just two days ago, the uh, the Department of Public Instruction agreed they would not make this change. They are withdrawing the proposal. They'll go back to the drawing board. No doubt they will attempt to slip it through under a different guise later. Uh, but I don't want to demonize the people who, who, who made this proposal. Uh, it should be acknowledged that uh, high school teachers now under the block schedule have to teach all of U.S. history from uh, 1776 to the present in one semester, uh, using long class hours to be sure, but still uh, the, the shortness of time is breathtaking. And in a sense, they would be relieved if they didn't have as much content to cover. They could go into more depth. But the solution, of course, is obvious. Uh, stretch it out to two semesters. Don't cut it short. That leads to a morass of politics and turf fighting with other disciplines as to what wouldn't get taught. Uh, but for now, at least, the attempt to uh, to leave out the content of, of what many of us think is the most important era in American history has been defeated. And uh, North Carolina students will at least have heard of the Civil War, one hopes, when they get to East Carolina University or other institutions of higher learning. Not that they know that much about it when they get here, but that's a, a rant for another day. Uh, I wanted to uh, thank the listener for the uh, the interesting email provoking that uh, observation and thank all who contributed uh, in the past week to the book fund here at Civil War Talk Radio. You can contribute via PayPal to civilwartr at aol.com. 
and those funds are used uh, primarily to buy books that uh, we talk about on the show. But it's not tax deductible. Uh, they can also be used to buy the beverages I drink while I read the books uh, or anything else I want. So uh, don't don't make that mistake. Well, this week, uh, speaking of preparing young people for citizenship, we have uh, a fascinating topic, uh, the relationship of, of citizenship and Civil War military service, although that's, that, that's far too brief and, and uh, unenlightening a, a description of, of the book. Uh, so let me uh, say hello to our guest this week, uh, Christian G. Samito. Chris, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Now, you are uh, a, uh, I'm looking at the, the biography in the back of the book here. It says, first of all, that uh, you've earned a law degree from Harvard Law School, as well as a doctorate from Boston College. I, I am never uh, shy about telling my listeners that I also have a degree uh, from Harvard. I got my, did my graduate work there. Uh, as well as a law degree that I got elsewhere. But in the past week, uh, and, and there, there's no humor in this, I want to stress, uh, a professor uh, in another southern state uh, went on a shooting spree and, and killed several members of her department after being denied tenure. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've read about that. Uh, right. And uh, according to her students, this professor continually reminded the students that she had a Harvard degree. And this has caused me to rethink my policy in Civil War talk radio of, of dropping the H-bomb at every opportunity. Um, any thoughts on that? Uh, I don't, well, I, you know, I don't know that. I know any, you weren't expecting uh, this question. I, you're right, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think it's a, a reflection necessarily on, on Harvard. Is It can't be. I mean, you always have... Um, you always have some people in any institution who uh, have their personal or psychological issues. Uh, I will say that Harvard, I think, was a different uh, different type of place, and uh, I, I think it's, uh, from what I understand, it's getting better, at least in terms of law school, in terms of trying to take care of uh, students' mental well-being and quality of life and, and things like that that go into having a good educational experience. Uh, I have to confess, I really don't know much about her her background or uh, what her experiences were, uh, both in in, in this in her her graduate studies at, at Harvard, or uh, or her experience as a professor. Um, I mean, I, I personally have always found teaching to be very uh, inspirational and something that uh, that I really love and enjoy, and has given me a lot of pleasure. Uh, and uh, I think no matter how busy I've I've gotten and and uh, the the busy schedule that I try to keep, it's always teaching that uh, when I'm in the classroom, that's always the the thing that makes whatever other stresses uh, that I have in life seem to go away. Uh, so for for me, teaching and being in a on a college campus has has always been a uh, a, a great experience and and something that uh, that kept some balance into a, a busy schedule um, and. You know, unfortunately, this this individual didn't seem to be able to maintain that in her life. It's yeah. tragic. It, it it truly is. Now, your busy schedule is partly because you, in addition to teaching, you uh, actively practice uh, practice law in Boston. Uh, what what's what's your specialty? What's your area? Uh, I I do do appellate law, which I think is a uh, a very good synergy between uh, that and, and and teaching. With appellate law, you. 
uh, get involved in policy arguments and you educate appeals court judges, whether it's three-judge panels or the seven-judge uh, in my state Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts or three-judge panels on the circuit court on the federal level. And uh, I think it's very, very similar, uh, both in terms of the writing that you do for the briefs where you try to make arguments and defend theses, uh, and during oral argument where you try to educate the judges and persuade them to uh, come around to your side or to uh, to understand your point or to answer their questions. Uh, when you're in a, an appeals court hearing, you get peppered with questions, much as you do with a good class or a good seminar where sometimes students stop talking to each other and they want to know what you think, and they, they have uh, questions, challenging questions often, I find, at Boston College. Uh, some outstanding students that I've had. And I do some teaching at uh, Boston University School of Law and uh, get asked very challenging questions all the time uh, that keep me on my toes. And uh, I think that there's a lot of similarity between being a good good professor and running a good class and being a good appellate lawyer. What about uh, the research angle? Do you find historical research, uh, for example, for the book you've done here and, and research for a brief to have much in common? You know, I, I get asked that quite a bit, and I think that my historical studies have reinforced my legal skills and vice versa. I think that to be an effective lawyer, you often have to tell a story and hook the judge uh, into what your case is about. And I think legal studies and legal analysis has certainly sharpened my historical thinking. It makes me question every source that I look at and uh, interrogate the document, so to speak, and uh, think about the subtext and what the author's point is and the author's background and biases and and really try to, the way I try to treat uh, documents is to look at them as a, uh, as if I were going to take a deposition and ask questions of that document as if I were deposing uh, someone in a uh, conference room under oath and try to really get at the truth in the heart of not just the words, but what's the meaning of the document, and then integrate it into what I'm looking at. I also think that being a lawyer has taught me that when you're looking at sources, you have to consider everything. You know, a lot of historians, I think they they define a thesis, and they try to find support for the thesis, and they ignore or gloss over things that don't necessarily agree with the thesis. One thing I learned as a lawyer is that you have to engage with everything. And if you don't discuss things that go against you in your brief, the judges will bring it up and the other side will bring it up. And so I think it's very important for historians to look at all sources and consider things that don't necessarily confirm or sometimes contradict their thesis. And it's always good advice to engage with uh, that contradictory material and figure out what's going on. It presents a, uh, a finer green picture and I think a more truthful, more accurate, uh, more historical picture. So I think for me, being a historian and being a lawyer have made me better at both. I, I uh, it, Well, if I had practiced appellate law instead of helping to finance strip malls on Cicero Avenue for a few years uh, in, in Chicago, I, I might still be a lawyer. Uh, but I I wonder, and I've been asked the same kind of question, if, if you can also make the argument, though, that uh, Whereas a lawyer does have an obligation to reveal uh, you know, ca- cases that are on point for your opponent as well as your own and then distinguish them in some way, uh, a historian theoretically could get away with ignoring contradictory evidence. But a historian, in theory at least, 
is not bound by his or her hypothesis. It's just the starting point, and then you let the evidence take you where it will. Whereas a lawyer does ultimately have a client and ultimately doesn't start saying, I wonder what position I'm going to come out in. You you do know oh, sure, right. which side you're on. Right. Does that not – I'm just curious your thoughts on that, that angle. Well, you're right. You're 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 advocating on behalf of a client in uh, in law, but I think that you're you're doing a disservice to your client if you're not familiar with and well versed in what's going against you, so that you could distinguish it. For I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that you uh, you know you, you you present everything in an appeals brief where you make the the other side's argument. But what I am saying is when you know there's something that goes against you, you have to engage with it. You have to at least be able to say to the judges uh, why it shouldn't apply why your case is different, uh, why the law should be changed, uh, why the appeals court should go in a different direction. Uh, but you, you, you can't simply gloss over uh, things that go against you because you'll, you'll get burned, whether it's uh, in the other side's briefs or at oral argument. Uh, and I guess that's what I'm, 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 I mean when I discuss uh, that in the historical context. I think that you, you, know, you, you have to at least engage with and understand and explain uh, things that may be problematic for your thesis or might complicate your thesis. Uh, sometimes lawyers do that. You know, you, you don't mention uh, things that go against you. And then mm-hmm. I've, seen, I've seen many lawyers uh, in appellate arguments before me get, get blindsided or not have, uh, not have an answer when the judge says, well, what about this controlling case? Uh, and I think there's this sense of, oh, maybe, maybe the judges won't find it. They always do. They always do. That, Judges and opposing a... counsels always find the things that you wish that they wouldn't do, and it's it's in being prepared to engage with that that mm-hmm. you become a uh, successful uh, an appellate attorney, and 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 that's that's true advocacy, I think, on your client to be well prepared and be able to engage with things that go against the point or go against where you want to uh, have the court go, uh, so that you could you could guide the court where you want to go. Let me. I, I very much want to turn to your book, but I want to ask one more question. Uh, which did you find harder, law school or graduate school? Uh, you know, that's a good. That's a good question. I, I wasn't always the best uh, law student. I, I I spent a lot of time reading and studying law, but I also devoted a lot of time to uh, going to uh, Widener, the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the liberal arts library, so to speak, on Harvard's campus, and reading a lot of history. So uh, I made sure to, to keep a good dose of uh, history in my life when I, was, uh, when I was studying law. I think history for me is more interesting. I think history is more challenging uh, because there's so much more that you have to be familiar with. And I think that with law, once you understand a certain philosophy, once you understand how to read cases, you can, uh, you can, you can get through. Now, it takes a lot more to engage with cases. It takes a lot more to really think about cases and, and think about policy and think about uh, the implications on a higher level. Uh, I, I think they're both challenging in their own, uh, in their own way. The, uh, I, I agree with you. I had the same experience of still reading history while I was in law school. But, uh, yeah, I took uh, a lot of legal history classes when I, I was I did a, the same, a law student, yeah. As much as there was at Michigan at the time, I did that. But I will also say, uh, uh, in case you haven't figured this out, uh, law pays way better. Uh, so stay where you are. Um, uh, that's uh, This is fun, but uh, you get more out of the other. Well, 
we need to get to the book, but we need to take a short break. We'll be right back with Christian G. Samito and Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Just what does it mean to be a citizen? To vote? To own property? To have civil rights? We'll talk about the meaning of citizenship in the Civil War when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today, Christian G. Samito, is the author of Becoming American Under Fire, Irish Americans, African Americans, and the Politics of Citizenship During the Civil War Era. And in our first segment, I could not resist uh, comparing notes of law school and legal days uh, and the, the world of historical scholarship. But uh, this is a book that is really uh, interesting and, and worth uh, our exploration. Let me start with, the, the as you start in the book, with a question about what citizenship actually is. Apparently, as late as the 1850s, nobody knew the answer to that question in the United States. Is that right? Right, it's a it's a fascinating. The way I start the book is a uh, I think a great anecdote where the uh, Secretary of the Treasury asks Lincoln's Attorney General Edward Bates a question about uh, citizenship, and it's really a question whether a free black man can be an American citizen. And uh, Secretary of the Treasury is asking, regardless of the Dred Scott uh, decision, where Taney answered uh, provide the answer no. Uh, and he goes to Edward Bates, uh, so Edward Bates could write a official opinion, an official opinion saying, yes, a free black man can be a United States citizen. But in the course of this, Bates is, as a good lawyer, he's trying to be thorough, and he wants to give a definition of what it means to be a United States citizen in the first place. And he looks everywhere. He looks at court treatises. He looks at uh, court cases, rather. He looks at treatises. And he says, I can't find a definition anywhere. Eighty years we've lived with this important idea that we're American citizens, and nowhere does he find a definition of what that means as a practical matter. And uh, what I find is that the rights and privileges that we now associate with national citizenship are defined on a local level, a uh, state-based level. Uh, and they're governed by all sorts of different characteristics, whether you're a slave or a free person, whether you're a naturalized citizen or native-born, 
uh, black or white, uh, your gender. It's a very different understanding of, uh, of citizenship rights and privileges than we have today. Then when you turn to the immigration issue, uh, you look and see that naturalization doesn't really have a full-blown definition either. There's no real definition of what means when you're a naturalized citizen. And there arise questions, what happens if you return? You're, you, you come to the United States, you naturalize in the United States, you become an American citizen, and you return back to your native land. Do you remain a naturalized American citizen, or does your original subjectship uh, temporarily revert while you're there? Well, the State Department says before the Civil War, yes, when you return back to your native land, your subjectship reverts while you're there. So again, it's a very different uh, perspective on naturalized citizenship than we have today. Today, once you become a naturalized citizen, you're a full-blown, equal American citizen with the one caveat that you can't run for president or vice president because that's in the Constitution. You have to be born in the United States. So it's a, it's a very different understanding of national citizenship before the Civil War. It's a somewhat hollow vessel. Uh, and most things are governed on the uh, state and local level in terms of rights and privileges. So in practical terms, uh, the, the naturalization issue doesn't affect uh, African Americans who are all born here, but it does affect Irish Americans. Uh, uh, what, d- 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 well, it affects Irish Americans particularly, I should say, because your, your subtitle focuses on, on them. Uh, what kind of, of liabilities were Irish Americans subject to in the 1850s? In terms of... Uh, in terms of citizenship, were, did they, were there restrictions on... Uh, did, was it more difficult for them to become naturalized? Was there opposition to them becoming well, naturalized? There, there, there was. There was the, uh, the Know Nothing movement, uh, especially because Irish uh, immigrants were Catholic in the... Uh, there had always been an impulse of anti-Catholicism in uh, American history since the colonial days. It really heated up in the 1830s when uh, a mob burned down a, uh, an Ursuline convent not too far from where I am right now in Boston, uh, burned down the convent in Charlestown uh, d- near the Bunker Hill Monument. Uh, and as the 1830s, 1840s went on, uh, nativism increased, and people really questioned uh, whether Irish Americans could be part of the American Republic, or does their foreignness, and especially their Catholicism, uh, preclude them from being true Americans. That especially heats up in the 1850s. Uh, In the wake of the famine in Ireland, you have three-quarters of a million Irish immigrants who come to the United States. They're overwhelmingly poor. They are not well-educated. They're not able to do anything other than uh, hard labor for low wages. And they, they really create a fear among a lot of native-born American Protestants uh, concerning their poverty and their foreignness, uh, their possible political influence as the Democratic Party uh, seeks to bring them into the fold. Uh, and there's the birth of the short-lived American Party, the Know Nothing Party, as they're more commonly uh, known, uh, which wages a social and cultural and political uh, campaign against uh, immigrants, and especially Irish Catholic immigrants. So, so it really does it really does heat up in the 1850s, a very exclusionary impulse uh, against Irish uh, Irish immigrants. 
And for African Americans, the question is even more clear. You said that citizenship or the the rights and privileges that we associate with citizenship are determined locally or on a state-by-state basis. Obviously, uh, people held in slavery aren't going to have any of those rights or privileges. Were there states that granted some some of the, the, the badges of citizenship to African Americans before the war? Some did. And the uh, the rule of of thumb uh, that historians have identified, and I think is is accurate, is that the older the state and the more north it is, uh, the more rights for African Americans. And the the newer and the closer to the south uh, the state is, uh, less rights. So you see, New England is somewhat progressive, uh, and much of New England allows black men to vote on equal terms as uh, as whites. But even there, you have. Uh, social strictures uh, that keep African-Americans on the uh, bottom rung. Uh, You have economic strictures that keep African-Americans on the bottom rung. Uh, Even in Boston, which has a, you know, Massachusetts has a a very progressive uh, viewpoint on race issues, but even in the early 1850s, Boston schools are segregated. And uh, the the doctrine of separate but equal comes about uh, from a, a court case where a black man sues the city of Boston uh, the education board has two two separate school systems, one for whites, one for, for blacks, and his five-year-old daughter has to walk a little further to go to an all-black school. It's a segregated school. And uh, Lemuel Shaw, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Judicial Court, comes up with the separate but equal doctrine, which is going to have uh, a resurgence with Plessy v. Ferguson. But really, it gets its start based on segregated schools in Boston, uh, a state that you traditionally associate with a liberal viewpoint on, uh, on uh, race relations and, and uh, things like that. There's discrimination and, and uh, second, second-tier citizenship even, uh, even here in Massachusetts. Now, the, let's move ahead to the, the outbreak of the Civil War. Up to this time in American history, you do have military participation, both by African-Americans and Irish-Americans, but it hasn't settled things for either side. Uh, If anything, I suppose Irish-Americans fighting uh, uh, on the wrong side in the Mexican War probably uh, exert a negative influence on Irish uh, citizenship. But when the war begins, uh, here's certainly an opportunity um, well, let's stay with the Irish example first, if we could. Um, you talk about the, the 69th New York uh, not uh, not parading for the Prince of Wales. Uh, mm. uh, talk about that incident. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating incident. Uh, the 69th New York is a militia. This is, this is in 1859, I believe, 1858. Mm-hmm. This is before the, before the Civil right. War. Yeah. Uh, d- and the Prince of Wales is uh, here in the United States on a uh, on a uh, tour that's very celebrated. He comes to New York, and the, the militia is ordered to turn out for a parade for him. And uh, the colonel of the regiment is an Irish nationalist and refuses uh, refuses to have a parade, refuses to bring the, the regiment out uh, for the parade, and, and sees that uh, participating would honor the Prince of Wales. And, of course, the Prince of Wales is uh, the symbol of, uh, of British dominion over Ireland. Now, nativists are going to look at that and say, well, here's a clear-cut case of Irish putting their loyalty to Ireland above their loyalty to America. They're here in America and shouldn't, shouldn't have done that. 
Uh, on the flip side, Irish would say uh, they can't parade because that would honor the British. But the other argument that, that, that people make, and, and Thomas Francis Marr, later commander of the Irish Brigade, uh, gives a great speech where he says, well, technically there was a conundrum in the law. There were two different laws uh, that could apply, and uh, the, 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 the colonel of the uh, regiment uh, took one tack. If, if it was clear that he had to parade the regiment, uh, then he would have had to do that to show they was a good citizen. Uh, but luckily, there's this wrinkle in the law that allows the Irish to be able to say, "Well, you know, we were we were just being very legalistic and we were following the law." And there's a there's a huge celebration uh, of not parading uh, to honor the Prince of Wales, where the, the the regiment gathers in a hall and they have a feast and there's a band and music and sword presentations. Uh, and it's this real questioning of where Irish Americans are going to fit in. Uh, now, when the war does break out, Irish Americans uh, are eager to uh, join. They're, they're like a lot of other people in the North. There's a carnival of patriotism, and, uh, and Irish Americans are eager to, uh, to join in the fight. Uh, and people are very welcoming. You have uh, an Irish Catholic regiment uh, formed in Massachusetts, the 9th, 9th Massachusetts, uh, where a few years earlier Irish American uh, militia units uh, had been disbanded by a nativist governor. Uh, so there's a striking change uh, in a very short amount of time uh, when you see Irish Americans are being recruited into the army and uh, welcomed into the fold. So, Irish uh, Americans, then, when they do join, uh, fight, it seems to me, for a number of motives. Uh, Susanna Bruce was on the show uh, last year talking about the, uh, the the question of how Irish Americans maintained both identities. They were, were loyal Americans serving uh, the Union Army, but also still loyal to uh, to their idea of Ireland. Uh, how how can they balance that? I, I think I think she's she's right on that point. I. I I think that Irish Americans became more Americanized uh, than uh, Professor Bruce believes. Uh, Irish Americans were able to balance both, and I think you, you really see this in speeches from Thomas Francis Marr and, and individuals like that. They're, they're able to balance both by saying the United States is the beacon of republicanism, small small R republican values. And if the United States falls and republicanism fails, here in the United States, then the beacon of republicanism worldwide will go out, and that's going to hurt the rest of Europe, and that's going to hurt Ireland. And Irish Americans are also able to say that preserving the United States as an ideological rival and a commercial rival to Britain hurts Britain. And if the United States falls, that strengthens Britain. So you see this issue of a primacy of supporting the Union and maintaining the United States here, having a twofold uh, purpose. A, af- affirmation of American citizenship. And I think that a lot of Irish in the United States Army do start to recognize an American allegiance alongside uh, their interest and in, in loyalties to Ireland. But it's also helping out Ireland. Because if the United States falls, the argument is republicanism is extinguished, and it supports monarchy, and it supports uh, things like Britain continuing to dominate Ireland. So uh, Irish Americans do, do, do bring the two together. 
And you see this in letters of Peter Walsh. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to read it in, in Thomas Francis Marr's letters, uh, uh, a very prominent lawyer and politician in general, uh, ethnic leader, I should say, rather than politician. Uh, it's another thing to see uh, Peter Walsh, who's a carpenter, writing, writing to his wife, saying very similar things. And when his father-in-law uh, challenges him on why he enlisted and, and why he's serving in the Union Army, and he articulates that viewpoint, saying, I have to do this because I'm an American citizen now, but I'm also doing this because it's preserving republicanism, and that's going to help Ireland, and it's also preserving an asylum for Irish people to come here and find a new life. Uh, it is blending the, the two allegiances and recognizing, uh, maintaining an interest in Ireland, but also starting to recognize and appreciate an Irish, uh, an American identity uh, and an American allegiance alongside the Irish one. Notably absent from from those letters or, or from anything we're discussing so far is the the idea of the Irish fighting uh, for the abstract concept of, of freedom, or, or more specifically, freedom for the slaves. Mm -hmm. um, there, uh, if we can transition here, uh, there are certainly two different things going on there. What about black participation uh, at the beginning of the war? That is, is simply not uh, not going to happen. But over time, uh, by 1862, we start to see the first black units being organized in, in the uh, the Union Army. And we'll go go ahead and talk about that. Right. It's 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 actually a uh, a, a very sad story with uh, Fort Sumter and uh, all this patriotism and, and men uh, coming under arms, African Americans want to participate to support the Union. And you actually have units uh, that start drilling in Pennsylvania, and you see uh, African Americans offering their services or offering to raise regiments. Sometimes they write directly to governors. Sometimes they write to the Secretary of War uh, and offer their services directly to the federal government. And time and again, the answer is no thank you. Uh, sometimes you have instances of, of racism where uh, African Americans are threatened as they're, they're drilling and, and preparing for their uh, participation. They're told this is a white man's fight, and we don't, we don't need uh, African Americans to be in the Army. Uh, now, that's still in the day when everybody thinks that this is going to be a short war, and uh, a year in, after uh, the bloodbath of Shiloh, after the defeats, uh, McClellan's defeat uh, during the Peninsula Campaign in the summer of 1862, uh, increasingly Northerners are more willing to use every weapon at the Union's disposal uh, to fight against the Confederacy. And one of those weapons is African Americans. And uh, I don't think that there's any... Uh, there's 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 a reason why the the, the legislation allowing African Americans to fight in the army uh, is passed in July 17 of 1862. You think the seven days ends on July 1st, 1862, and it's a big uh, Union defeat, and it's a real wake up call, I think, for people that this is going to be a long war, and the Union really has to use uh, weapons at its disposal. And now you have a reconsideration, uh, where before African Americans are excluded from the Union Army, uh, now legislation gets passed uh, to bring them in. Interestingly, on July 17, 1862, a, a separate law uh, becomes enacted that fast-tracks uh, immigrants to naturalized uh, citizenship. 
and reduces the uh, the, the waiting period uh, and fast tracks them into citizenship. For African Americans, the legislation that authorizes their enlistment into the United States Army doesn't talk about citizenship. And in fact, African American soldiers are going to have to wait until 1866 to be recognized as national citizens, well, even though they're fighting break. under arms. Let, let's take a short break right here and come back to this topic, uh, the citizenship for Irish and African Americans. We're talking with Christian G. Semito. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Becoming American under fire. How does war affect concepts of citizenship? What does serving in the armed forces do for the individual in his relationship with the national government? We'll explore these questions and more when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. cars and want to know more about them? Thinking about investing in your dream car but don't know if it's a smart decision? Want to fix up that classic that's just rotting away in your garage but don't know how to get started? You need Resto Talk. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, Melvin Benziquin, the restoration expert, will address these topics and more and invite prestigious guests from the automotive industry to answer all of your questions and provide you with great quality information. Get your motor started with Resto Talk on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Chris Samito. He is the author of Becoming American Under Fire, Irish Americans, African Americans, and the Politics of Citizenship During the Civil War Era. And we've been talking about the experience of uh, both Irish Americans and African Americans uh, once their uh, service was accepted, uh, the Irish from the beginning of the Civil War, the African Americans not until July of 1862. Uh, but the, this effect of serving uh, in the armed forces uh, when you belong to a group whose citizenship is not clear uh, uh, or even explicitly denied in the case of African Americans, according to the Dred Scott decision, uh, or whose citizenship may be delayed uh, by the process of naturalization and may not be fully complete if, if, if a naturalized citizen is not the same as a, a native-born citizen. Uh, when uh, Chris, when, when African Americans became soldiers, uh, what most people know of this, uh, or their first exposure to it, often is, is from uh, the movie Glory. Uh, uh, everybody listening to the show has seen it four or five times, is my prediction. Uh, I know I have. It is... Uh, a, I'll, I'll uh, second that. I have, too. It's an inspiring movie and, and, and well-made. Um, 
there's a scene in it uh, that everybody recalls where the 54th Massachusetts, one of the first uh, state African-American regiments, uh, has been subject to abuse from its uh, the other regiments in its brigade, uh, the white soldiers, uh, the Euro-Americans who don't like them. And then they, they get in a fight and in, in a battle with, with the rebels. Uh, the 54th uh, does its job, holds its ground, and going uh, uh, in the next scene, we see them marching past one of the, the European-American regiments, and these same uh, white soldiers who had been abusing them minutes ago, one of them now says, give them hell, 54th. Uh, the, the black soldiers have earned the respect uh, of the white soldiers by fighting. It's a great moment in the movie. Did that process really take place, or is that just Hollywood telling us how they wish it had been? It's a complicated process, but I, I do think it, 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 it does take place. Uh, I think that the black military experience is very, very paradoxical. You have moments of tremendous egalitarianism, uh, both in terms of some legal issues uh, and these kind of personal issues, uh, interactions between white and black soldiers. There's a, a, a great story about the, um, the 14th United States Colored Infantry, most, most black regiments were mustered into uh, the federal army directly with uh, United States colored infantry, cavalry, artillery designation. The 14th Infantry performs in battle very well uh, at Dalton, Georgia. And there's a white regiment, the 51st Indiana, that reportedly honored their black comrades. Uh, when they were asked what regiment they were, they shouted out 51st colored uh, to honor uh, the 14th USCI's performance. I do think that you had moments like that. Uh, there were reports for the 54th Massachusetts, for instance, where several white regiments nearby shouted, you know, hurrah, you saved the regiment, uh, and well done, we heard your guns. There were moments like that. On the other hand, there were uh, moments of being insulted and being jeered, uh, despite Army regulations that black and white soldiers were to do equal labor at posts uh, inspectors would sometimes find situations where a black regiment would be at a uh, post and it would have to do all of the labor duty, digging of ditches or latrines or fortifications, while white regiments uh, did none. So there were these moments that were that were troubling, uh, like that. There was certainly uh, prejudice against African American troops in the unequal pay issue, where uh, African American troops are initially mustered into the Union Army believing that they're going to get the same pay as white soldiers. And uh, when the solicitor, the chief attorney for the War Department, who happens to have good Republican credentials, he looks at that July 1862 legislation and he realizes the way it's written, black soldiers are only entitled to $10 a month in pay uh, minus a clothing allowance. They're not entitled to equal pay to uh, white soldiers. That generates a huge protest among the African-American troops, where many of them uh, refuse to accept any pay, uh, unless it's equal to those of whites. Among the 54th and 55th, uh, they take a step further. Massachusetts, the state legislature in Massachusetts, uh, votes and says, okay, if the, the federal government's not going to pay uh, equally, the state will make up the difference. Massachusetts will, will make up the difference so that its black troops are paid uh, equally, at least the black troops in those two regiments. And the men refuse that and say, if we accept pay from the state, that's accepting some distinction based on color. 
That's saying that we're not equal to white soldiers. And you see letters that say, we wouldn't want to be paid more than white soldiers, because that would mean that we're different. And so you see among the African-American Corps a real call for equality. And in this protest, which does get the attention of uh, Congress, blacks win the first black-led civil rights protest. And ultimately, Congress does equalize uh, pay for black soldiers. So you see sometimes these moments of racism that also involve moments of uh, legal change and, and of recognition. I thought one of the interesting points you make throughout uh, the book is how how this is reflected in the post-war era, uh, especially in things like the military justice system, which uh, does certainly... Uh, uh, impact affect uh, harshly the the African American soldiers uh, who are subject to the Articles of War, but but so are the the white soldiers. Uh, but it, it, the the black soldiers get a degree of due process in military justice that they might not have gotten in civil courts of that era. And I, it, as I read that, it, it's it's the word surprising is used several times. I think you use it, and some of the other uh, authors you quote use it surprising that black soldiers got due process, I almost had the feeling that the military didn't didn't have any mechanism for institutionalized racism. They would have done it if they had thought of it, but there's nothing in the book to justify not giving counsel to a black defendant, so they had to go ahead and do it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm actually not so sure that the Army would have uh, instituted I mean, they could have, they could have very easily uh, come up with two, two sets of... Uh, of, uh, of disciplinary codes. I mean, they certainly were willing to go along with two different uh, pay scales mm-hmm. uh, for soldiers. What I thought was very striking, and, and it was striking, was very surprising to me as I, I delved into the research, looking at court-martial transcripts. And what I found is many infractions, uh, as across the board for, for all soldiers, many infractions, many disciplinary issues were handled on an individual basis, meaning uh, a company officer or a regimental officer disciplined the soldier. And there you find quite a bit of racism uh, among racist uh, officers in, in, in the uh, black regiments. But if a crime was serious enough, if, a, if an infraction was serious enough, it went to a general court-martial. And on the general courts-martial, there really was a surprising level of due process afforded to African-American soldiers. And, you know, one, one court-martial I looked at was uh, Sergeant Samuel Green. And Sergeant Samuel Green was accused by his company commander uh, of leading a, a mutiny. And, and what happens is they're on a steamer uh, being transported, and there's some men at the back of the boat who are upset, and they're talking about mutiny. And Sergeant Green goes to the captain and says, you know, we have a problem. Uh, we have to deal with this, otherwise there will be the devil to pay. And the captain misinterprets that to mean uh, that Green is threatening him and saying, unless you address the issue, we're going to have a mutiny. Green is charged. He has to defend himself at court-martial. He's entitled to representation. He represents himself. Uh, the white officer testifies, as I basically summed up, and Green defends himself and asks questions of white officers, and they puts on black witnesses. And the black witnesses say, no, what Green was doing is warning the captain that there was a problem and saying we need to deal with this before it turns into a mutiny. And the, courts, the court-martial panel exonerates uh, Sergeant Green. Hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating moment where you see a situation like that. There was another uh, courts-martial case where there was a mutiny, and the judge advocate general 
argues to the panel, clearly the defendant committed mutiny, and clearly he needs to be punished. But he says, mutiny is a capital offense, and surely this doesn't rise to a capital crime because the men in the regiment were frustrated by the unequal pay issue, and that's why there's discontent in this, in this regiment. And the man gets imprisonment, but not the death penalty. Now, the next time there's a mutiny in the regiment, that individual does get the death penalty, and you get the sense that the panel is starting to get nervous. Uh, and does have to enforce discipline, make sure that you don't have continual mutinies in the regiment. But it's a very striking moment where the prosecutor is saying, you have to punish this man, but don't punish him too severely, because the reason he mutinied is because of uh, prejudice and unequal pay. And that's why the men in the regiment are upset, and there's this disciplinary tension. It's a fascinating moment. And it's a fascinating moment where you have black testimony uh, becoming important, uh, and, and think about the, the impact for uh, the tens of thousands of ex-slaves who the discipline they knew came from a plantation owner or an overseer who acted arbitrarily. There was no, there was no due process on the plantation. And now you're involved with trials and the rule of law. And, and really I think it sends a message to African Americans that law can be equalized and law can be used to defend rights and, and protect their rights. And due process becomes a part of African American post-war claims. And that that brings us uh, eventually to, of course, the Fourteenth Amendment. But let me circle around instead uh, back to the Irish case uh, because when we first started talking about citizenship, you pointed out uh, the the question of expatriation and the fact that if you came to the United States and became a naturalized American citizen, it was unclear uh, for many years what happened if you went back home under the the Wheaton Doctrine. Uh, uh, you you were now once again subject to your original. Uh, law and, and the British uh, held to the doctrine of perpetual allegiance that you could not renounce your British subjecthood. You were always subject to British law uh, if you came back. Uh, in, after the war, uh, that comes up with a particular case, uh, that of Warren and Nagel. Uh, can you talk about that uh, and, and briefly as we're getting near the end? But it's a fascinating story. Sure, sure. What happens is after after the war, Irish nationalists uh, called Finians are returning to Ireland and returning to Britain to try to foment uh, revolution, trouble for the British there. And the Finians, are, there are two wings of the Finians. One wing is involved in Ireland and UK. The other wing uh, wants to invade Canada and actually does invade Canada and uh, wants to use that invasion to gain Irish independence. And as you pointed out, the British hold on to this idea of perpetual allegiance, that nothing you do, if you're born in British territory, UK territory, there's nothing you could do to disclaim your loyalty to the crown. So if you go to the United States and naturalize, that's great, but Britain isn't going to recognize you as, a Amer- as an American citizen. It's going to recognize you as a British subject. So you have these Finians coming over uh, and causing problems and getting arrested, there's a real issue. Do you try them if they claim naturalized American citizenship? Do you try them uh, as a British subject, right, for treason charges, subjecting them to the death penalty, or do you try them as naturalized Americans? And the British say, no, you're a British subject. That's going to cause a furor in the United States. 
And it's going to involve not just Irish Americans saying that they need to be protected abroad, but native-born Americans are going to call for an equal protection for naturalized American citizens. And that's really striking. I mean, think about it. This is the very thing that would have terrified nativists in the 1850s, the idea of naturalized American citizens going over and causing problems in a foreign country because they have an affinity for Ireland. And now you have, even in, in Boston, the bastion of know-nothingism, the bastion of nativism, you have a call, uh, 6,000 people gather at Faneuil Hall and uh, call for equalization uh, for naturalized and native-born citizens. And out of that, two things come about. One is a legislative act that's still in effect today that says that you can naturalize and the United States will defend your right to naturalize. And the other is diplomatic pressure that forces Britain by 1870 to abandon its centuries-old doctrine of perpetual allegiance. Perpetual allegiance was one of the main causes of the War of 1812. It was the idea that gave rise to Britain being able to board American ships and impress uh, sailors. Now it gets resolved because of diplomatic pressure that really comes about because of this Irish-American protest that native-born Americans join into. And naturalized citizenship becomes equalized to native-born citizenship. So in that sense, uh, becoming American under fire literally happens. Irish who fought in the war are now going to be protected worldwide once they are Americans. Uh, and of course, uh, through the 14th Amendment, eventually uh, African Americans will have their citizenship defined. Uh, unfortunately, Chris, we're out of time. The music is telling me that. Uh, so we've got to go, but I will urge all our readers to take a look at Becoming American Under Fire, Irish Americans, African Americans, and the Politics of Citizenship During the Civil War Era. It's by Christian G. Semito, our guest today. Chris, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. <laughs>